0: Graham and I were talking actually last week um, about he and Tara's vacation a couple weeks ago. And it brought to mind something I hadn't thought about um, in years, honestly. Um, I didn't grow up uh, taking like the long family vacations um, when I was a kid. Uh, my dad was self-employed, so we just didn't do the take 10 days off and travel somewhere thing. I went on two or three ski trips with my mom every year. I went two or three hunt trips with my dad every year. They were, you know, shorter things. But we didn't do the whole take a full, big, long chunk of time off and travel somewhere thing. Just didn't do it. So when I married my wife... Um, who did grow up taking like a couple vacations every year. Dad was union, so he got like six months a year off or something. Um, And, uh, uh, she fairly quickly started asking, so where are we going to go on vacation? Um, and I honestly had no idea what she was talking about. I didn't understand the whole process of just choosing a place and then traveling there just to do all the things that you do there. And um, so I told her that we would not be doing that. Um, it was expensive and unnecessary, and I grew up just fine without that kind of traveling. Um, so long vacations would not be part of our family. So we're leaving on our first family vacation, um, going to, uh, Michigan, and I've got my two sons, my sister, Esther's whole family, and a good friend of her family, um, and we drove to Michigan. Esther has some family in Detroit, and so we, uh, we visited them. We hit some gorgeous spots up the, uh, west coast of, uh, Michigan, uh, along the lake. Um, we went to Mackinac Island and all through the Upper Peninsula, and, uh, I experienced the first time in my life that I really wanted to move away from the Kansas City area. Um, I literally, Fell in love with Michigan, looked for jobs there, which wasn't easy because this is, kids get ready for this, this is before there was a such thing, not only was there no such thing as job sites or websites where you could look for jobs, there wasn't even Google because there wasn't even an internet, that's how old we are, Um, we're older than Google. Um, and so it was hard hunting for a job, but I did. I hunted for jobs in Michigan and uh, uh, because I'd experienced how amazing it was compared to Kansas. And when we got home, I couldn't pull off and move to Michigan, so we settled back into Kansas life. A couple years later, we vacationed to Colorado. And uh, I'd grown up skiing all over the area, but I didn't realize there was, like, normal houses in Denver and Boulder and, and Colorado Springs. And so um came home, immediately started the job hunt again, like, absolutely fell in love with Colorado, made Michigan look like cheap junk, like Colorado. Colorado's where you got to live. Um, I couldn't believe how many ministries were headquartered in like Colorado Springs. I was like, living here would be like the promised land. Like I'm going to live here um, once again. Super disappointed to have to come home and live in Kansas. And then something started to dawn on me. When uh, we borrowed a friend's cabin in Bennett Springs, Arkansas for a week, and I fell in love with river life. I was like 100% ready to plant a little country church in Arkansas. I was going to do remodeling and handyman work all over the area and just throw ourselves fully into the hillbilly life, man. I was ready. And so when I came home and kind of meditated on how alluring Bennett Springs, Arkansas was and, and uh, Traverse City, Michigan, Colorado Springs, Colorado, um, I realized that it wasn't the place that I was falling in love with. The revelation came as I realized that I wanted to move to every single city we had ever visited uh, on, in vacation for vacation, um, and uh, except for Florida, you guys know how I feel about Florida. That one didn't tempt me at all. Um, but it was uh, it was that time I realized that every city that, uh, that in the country was probably amazing if you had nothing to do all day other than enjoy the city if you didn't have to go to work and drive through rush hour and mow a lawn. You know, when you're there just to play, every place is amazing. And I started realizing Kansas City is probably amazing if all I had to do all day was play and enjoy myself in vacation mode so I'm proud to say that um, after all these years I can now visit a city um, without having to move my entire family there just because they've got good walking trails and a free museum Um, but uh, but this week as we dive into week two of welcome to the kingdom we're going to be stressing what every realtor in the world knows and that is uh, the most important element of real estate is Location, location, location. Right. So this year, from Easter to Pentecost, which basically represents the uh, the time that Jesus spent on the earth after His resurrection, um, before ascending to the Father and sending the Holy Spirit, um, we're we're doing a deep dive on what it means to live in the kingdom. To uh, in light of the empty tomb. On Easter morning, um, we're holding this uh we're talking about what it means to live in God's kingdom. And we're holding this series together by looking at seven elements that every kingdom throughout history has had. These are basically the things that make a kingdom a kingdom. And I think uh they have a lot to say to us about God's kingdom and what it means to live in, in such a kingdom. Uh last week we talked about how every kingdom has a king. Uh, and and in the kingdom of God, whether we want to recognize it or not, we have a king, and you are not it, Um, and neither am I. Uh, uh, Jesus sits on the throne of God's kingdom, and that seat is for him alone, which means we are not in charge. Um, We are not the king. We are subjects called to serve obediently in the kingdom. Well, this week we're going to be looking at the second element um, of kingdom living, and that is land. Um, kingdoms have borders uh they have they take up space and they have established territory uh most kingdoms throughout history have sought to like expand their kingdom um, uh, but no kingdom has ever not had land uh this is obviously one of the biggest themes of the entire bible uh and it's one that the church hasn't always done a great deal uh, a great job of dealing with for a couple reasons first there was, I have a lot to get through, so I'm talking kind of fast, so you got to turn up the speed in your ears a little bit. Because if I don't, I'll get in big trouble, I'll send the kids up early. Um, but uh, first there was a, a major transition in Western culture toward the end of the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, where European nation states started to kind of settle. Um, before that, borders were very flexible and constantly being tested and pushed and changed and threatened. And part of a monarch's job was kind of to hold down the borders, uh, maybe even expand the kingdom if you can. Uh, the Holy Roman Empire was it was kind of uh, assumed to rule everything. Um, but when it came to uh, a local monarchs, the reach of the local monarchs, what were called principalities, the borders were always kind of moving. Um, and so as the power of the Roman Empire started to diminish uh the need for kind of firmly defined national borders grew uh and and uh these were important because the the land always outlived the king and so you might go through kings every couple of years but the land stayed established it was firm and so uh monarchs themselves kind of shrunk in importance and the land of the kingdom uh, uh grew in value and so, we struggle sometimes with the nature of a kingdom that has, that takes up real space, like the kingdom of God, but is also centralized, dependent upon, and revolves around the king, where the king is central, not so much the land and borders. Um, and so that helps, that makes us struggle with the kingdom of God a little bit. Um, the second reason the kingdom, uh, the church struggles in understanding the kingdom of God is because our fixation with heaven. Um, we have this tendency to act as though the location of the kingdom of God is the place where we will go when we die. Um, and, and mostly now we're in the world but not of the world and that thing while we're here. But the kingdom of God is more about the place that we will go when we're done with this place. Uh, and I, I believe in heaven, praise God. I look forward to it and the, the vast majority uh, of the Bible though is not about going to heaven when we die. Uh, Jesus encouraged us to pray, thy kingdom come. It's about bringing God's kingdom here on earth. As believers in Jesus Christ, in light of the empty tomb, we are supposed to be living... And walking and praying down God's kingdom into this world. So I look forward to heaven. We're going to talk about heaven when we talk about the rights and privileges and benefits of living in the kingdom. Um, But heaven is not the territory of the kingdom. Heaven is not where the kingdom is. In fact, Jesus said this. Uh, One day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is or it's over there. But the kingdom of God is already... Among you. So, we have to let go of the idea that, uh, when it comes to the kingdom's location, it's, uh, that it's a simple place that we will someday go. It's way, way more complicated and integrated than just heaven. Uh, it's a, it's kind of an intense part of life, uh, as well as, um, a long and complex part of the biblical narrative. When the first humans Sinned. part of the consequences was that they were removed from their land. Uh, They were forced out and then blocked from returning because location, 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 location matters. Um, It only took 12 chapters before God called Abraham and told him to vacate the location of his father's home and find a new territory, which God would point out to him. And Abraham obeyed because location, location, location. Location matters. And God proved uh, promised Abraham and his sons and grandsons a piece of land that would not only be amazing, but it would be theirs. Their own land. And generations later, God delivered Abraham's further descendants from slavery so that they could have their own land. Location, location, location. In fact, despite all the many names, we tend to call that the promised land because it was for so long occupied by other people but promised to God's people Israel now we're going to start this our kind of deep dive this morning at the moment when all of those promises were about to become a reality uh, Israel had been delivered by a mighty hand uh, and an outstretched arm of their king God had poured out plagues on Egypt he'd part as he judged Israel's enemies God had given his command and the people um, had made a covenant to be his people uh, and they had uh, all they had left to do was to take the land. That's all that there was left to do. We talked last week uh, about that moment um, that God uh, told Moses to pack up and get moving and take the land. And Moses, in kind of an act of sheer beauty and wisdom, um, told God that that he would uh, rather stay in the wilderness with God than take a land flowing with milk and honey without him. And we talked about that last week um, because every kingdom needs a king. Amen. I'm gonna to have to hear some amens today because we're gonna get rowdy. Amen. All right, there we go. Um, but but God promises to go with Moses and his people, uh, and Moses starts making the first serious plans for setting up the official territory of the kingdom of God, because every kingdom needs its own space, location, location, location. So Moses starts by gathering spies, and each time, in uh, each of the twelve tribes committed one spy, uh, to go into the land and bring back a report. Um, so I'm going to start this morning's uh, passage in, in Numbers 13. Um, if you want to, uh, uh, thanks Teresa, Teresa's giving me some amens online. Yeah, keep them coming, uh, O-Fam, you're over there. I always look at you over here, but you're over there. Um, so Ofam, if you want to follow along, you can go to the bulletin and click the link if you want to follow the slides. Otherwise, you can open your own Bible or app to Numbers 13, follow along there. Um, or you can just, uh, uh, listen to, to me read. So, the Lord now said to Moses, send out the men to explore the land of Canaan, the land I'm giving to the Israelites, and one leader from each of the twelve ancestral tribes. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He sent out twelve men, all tribal leaders from Israel, from their camp in the wilderness of Paran. These were the tribes, uh, or these were the tribes and the names of their leaders. And then he gives many names. I'm not going to read them to you. I can't pronounce most of them anyway. Um, these are the names of the men Moses sent out to explore the land. Moses called Hosea, um, son of Nun, by the name Joshua. Uh, Moses gave the men these instructions as he sent them out to explore the land. Go north through the Negev into the hill country. See what the land is like. Find out whether the people living there are strong or weak, few or many. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Uh, do their towns have walls, or are they unprotected like open camps? Is the soil fertile or poor? Are there many trees? Uh, do your best to bring back samples of the crops you see. So they went up and explored the land. Now, most of us know what what happens here. The spies went out, and they found the land every bit as amazing as God said it would be. It took multiple men to carry back a, a bunch of grapes because um, the land was that fertile. Uh, but there was a problem, right? I'm going to skip ahead to, in this same chapter. This is the same chapter, a little further down in verse 25. It says, after exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, uh, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. Uh, they reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit they had taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. We are the land you sent us to explore, and indeed it is a bountiful country. The land is flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces, but the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, and Jebusites, and Amorites, and Cellulites, and all the otherites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live among the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as he stood before Moses. Let's go at once and take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread their bad report about the land amongst the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We are. We even saw giants there from the descendants of Anak. Uh, uh, next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. This is the word of the Lord. Now the ten spies um, come back with a bad report, and they terrify the people. And before we move on, um, do you want to see? I'm going to show you what wisdom looks like. This is fun. This is what wisdom looks like. Are you ready for this? This is wisdom. Look at what Moses is told to do. The Lord now said to Moses, send out men to explore the land of Canaan, the land that I'm giving the Israelites. Send one leader from each tribe. Uh, Well, what does Moses tell the spies to do? He says, Moses gave the men these instructions. He sent them out to explore the land. Go north through the Negev into the hill country, see what the land is like, and find out whether the people living there are strong or weak, few or many, see what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Do the towns have walls? Are they protected like open are they like are they unprotected like open camps? Is it fertile soil and on and on and on. Okay. Are you ready to see wisdom? This is this is Bible wisdom right here. We're going to skip ahead in the same story a little bit to when Joshua actually goes into the promised land. We know that 40 years have to go by. It's now Joshua's turn to take people in the promised land. And this is what Joshua tells the spies he sends in. Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies to the Israelite camp uh, at the Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. Do you see what happens here? This is subtle, but look what happens. What did God say? Send out men to explore the land of Canaan. What did Joshua tell the men to do? Scout out the land. I love this so much. God never told Moses to check out the people in the land. He never told Moses to 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 send out the spies to see how many challenges there would be, to see how hard things might get. He never told the spies to to spy out all that. He just said, go check out the land. Moses added all that other stuff. Joshua was one of the people, one of those 12 spies, he was one of the ones that wanted to go in. He saw the damage that that much looking could do, so he stuck to exactly what God said. God said, check out the land, go check out the land. Don't look anywhere else, just check out the land. The rest is God's business. The people there are God's business. Joshua stuck to the exact instructions. How many of you know we can get in just as much trouble adding to God's instructions as we can taking away from them? Amen? Right. That's for free. That has nothing to do with our sermon today. I just couldn't skip it. Let's go back (laughs) to the spies report. Uh, The people, after hearing the report about how intimidating the people in the land were, completely lost it. They wanted to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. They wanted to choose new leaders. They were a hot mess. Completely fell apart. Uh, And this did not make God happy at all. He actually was ready to destroy them all and start over with Moses. He's like, what do you say I make of you a great nation? We'll send out the children of Moses into the future instead of the children of Abraham. Um, And Moses... And one of the most beautiful prayers of intercession in the entire Bible, I highly recommend reading it in Numbers 14, but we don't have time this morning, praise for the people of Israel. It's an amazing prayer. Uh, And God relents on destroying Israel, but he does say this. The Lord said, I will pardon them as you have requested, but as surely as I live, as surely as the earth is filled with the Lord's glory, none of these people will ever enter the land. They've all seen the glorious presence and the miraculous signs I performed both in Egypt and in the wilderness. But again and again, they've tested me and refused to listen to my voice. They will never see the land I swore to give their ancestors. None of those who have treated me with contempt will ever see it. And this begins the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that marks such a huge part of Israel's national identity. And though this was a historical reality, a real moment in time that happened, and it would be 40 years before uh, these people would even consider trying again, just as God said, this passage actually reveals so much that is profound uh, and, and bears on those of us who find ourselves living in a New Testament context. Because listen to what God says. They have seen my glorious presence, the miraculous signs I performed both in Egypt and the wilderness, but again and again, they've tested me and refused to listen to my voice. This is so big. We have the tendency to look back on the Old Testament, uh, especially the Old Testament kingdom living, um, where they were advancing with the sword and bloodshed as if this is a, a completely different world and almost a different God. And it was a quite different context in many ways, but this story this morning, God is asking his people for the same exact thing he's asking us for today. God is asking them for faith. He's asking them to believe him. He's basically saying, you saw what I did. You saw my power. How could you possibly think I can't protect you? How could you possibly not have faith in me? So even though so much of that world looks different than the world we live in, God is still asking for the same thing. We tend to think that God requires faith as a New Testament thing. Like that's new to the story of God. But all God has ever wanted is for his people to trust him. And in today's story, God's kingdom fails to advance because God's people have no faith. And this is such an amazing and perfect picture of the territory of God's kingdom. Because in a literal, physical, historical way, God's earthly kingdom as portrayed in Israel can only exist where there is faith. They are unable to take the land and exist within borders if they don't have Faith, which is exactly the circumstance we find in the New Testament. So based on this passage and everything we know about faith as the economy of the kingdom in the New Testament, I'd like to submit this definition for the territory of God's kingdom. The territory of God's kingdom is the space created by God's people as they put their faith in him. The territory of God's kingdom is the space created by God's people as they put their faith in Him. In today's story, God is trying to give His kingdom space. And they can only take that space by faith. So whether we're talking about this ancient army marching into enemy territory to advance God's kingdom, or the gospel entering a single human heart... To add one more soul to the kingdom of God thereby spreading the territory of God's kingdom faith is and has always been the vehicle that moves God's kingdom forward into new space which begs the question the question faith in what? I mean in today's passage it's pretty self explanatory God wants his people to have faith that he's big enough to protect them and loves them enough to do it but what about you and me? I'm pretty sure God isn't calling us to advance his kingdom with the sword and violence. So so how does faith work in our context? To start digging into that question, let's shift gears for a minute. But hold in one hand the idea uh, of that reality that all God is asking for and really wants from his people is to trust him. To believe that he really is God and really can save them. And we're going to jump all the way forward to Mark's gospel. Many scholars believe that Mark's gospel is is written in a loose chiastic structure, meaning it's kind of a pyramid with a main point on top. And it all leads to this story that's right in the middle of the gospel, this conversation. And and most scholars believe that Mark's original uh, audience would have been familiar with that kind of structure, so they would have known to look for this here. And so he's drawing our attention to a conversation that is his main point. Maybe the only main point of his gospel. And it's in March 8, Mark 8, and it reads like this. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee, and he went up to the village near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others one of the other prophets. And I want to stop right here for a second. Before we move on. Because I think it's kind of profound where they're having this conversation. Because Caesarea Philippi was not a Jewish city. It was, a, a, it was in the original territory of Israel. But it was, it was planted and founded during the, the era of Alexander the Great. Uh, by some of the Ptolemaic kings. Founded this as a trade depot in Israel. So this is not an original Jewish city. This is a, this is a Hellenistic outpost. In fact, it was originally called Caesarea Panaeus in honor of the god Pan. The city was dedicated to the god Pan and it originally got conquered, and so they switched it to Caesarea Philippi. It's a trading depot, but even more, it's a hub for all the various ideas and philosophies of the day. This is a huge marketplace of ideas. Sound familiar? Caesarea Philippi is a type of place where everyone might have their own truth. Hello? Okay, I'm going to talk to the O-Fam because nobody here is even having church today. O-Fam. Caesarea Philippi is a type where the false gods of wealth and sexuality and comfort and independence and safety and science might be worshipped. Sound familiar? Okay, now we're here. I think Caesarea Philippi is the place where Jesus could have tweeted this question in 2022. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples answer, uh, some say this, some say that. Some say you're a great moral teacher like Buddha. Some say you're a social justice warrior like Martin Luther King Jr. Some say you're a great thinker like Plato. Some say you're more of an idea than a person. In fact, some say you're a political platform point used to leverage a voting block. And I bet if we polled the people you work with, we'd get hundreds of answers to this question. And I think it's a good question for us to wrestle with today. Who do people say that Jesus is? Who do your coworkers say that Jesus is? Who do your kids say that Jesus is? Who do your neighbors and extended family and who do your kids' teachers say that Jesus is? We make assumptions all the time that, uh, that when we're saying Jesus, we're all saying the same thing. But even in the first century, when Jesus was walking the earth, that wasn't the case. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the other prophets. Even when he was alive, people weren't saying the same thing when they said Jesus. It's no different today. Who do people say That I am. But this isn't even the question that Mark's after, is it? Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you're the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Who do you say that Jesus is? Right there in Caesarea Philippi, in the heart of pluralism and subjectivity for that region, right in the middle of woke nation, Jesus asked the question, the question. So politically divisive, so potentially destructive. The draw in the land, draw the line in the sand type question: Who do you say that I am? And Mark writes it for us. Jesus is like, I don't care what Twitter says. I don't care what the public schools say. I don't care what the politicians say. I'm no, I'm no longer asking what television says. I want to know. Who you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And I wasn't even originally planning on going this direction with this message. I first when I first laid out my outline for this series, and I'll be honest, I rarely stick to those when I make them out. But I wasn't planning on wrestling with Mark eight until I read a study this week. I read a study about millennials. There're roughly two thousand millennials, twenty to right now twenty to forty, and they asked these these. Folks, all kinds of questions on hundreds of topics, but when they got to faith, the exciting part was that 65% of them said they were Christian. I was stoked. Those are good numbers. I'll take those numbers. 65% of the millennials' question said that uh, that they were that they were Christians. Way better than I was fearing. 65 is awesome. And if I had put the study down right there, I might have been able to sleep. Might not have even changed this message this morning. I would have just ignored Mark's question for us. But I continued reading and messed everything up. Note to self, when you read an encouraging statistic, just put it down. Walk away. But I read on, God help me. And I learned that although 65% of millennials surveyed, confess to being Christian, only about 6 believe that Jesus is God. About 6%. Only about 6% believe that the Bible is God's word and at all authoritative. That's not even getting into an inerrancy or you know, some of the trickier things. That's just that, that it's authoritative, that we're supposed to live by it. Only about 6% believe that Jesus is the way to heaven. So in other words, although 65% say they're Christians, only 6% give biblical answers to that question. Which is terrifying. I'd rather the original number only be 6%. This study upset me so much that I did the really smart thing and looked up more studies like it because I don't like sleeping. And one survey by either Barna or Pew Research Group, I can't remember which one, of regular church attenders. Regular church attenders. Ninety one percent said they don't believe that people are sinful and in need of salvation. Through Jesus. Ninety one percent. 71% do not believe the Bible is a reliable, true communication from God. These are regular church attenders. These aren't just scattered millennials. Regular church attenders. And all of this echoes back to Jesus' question, Who do you say that I am? And unfortunately, whether we're in Caesarea Philippi, Why am I struggling with that word so much? Caesarea Philippi, for the United States of America the answer to that question who do you say that I am is not subjective it is not defined by your truth you guys have heard that right your truth the new thing your truth my truth everyone's living their truth And I understand where that comes from. I do agree we tend to have different perspectives and experiences that color the way we see things. And we can't assume that everyone has experiences the same things that we have. And therefore they're not going to see everything exactly the way we have. But there are some things that are either true or they're not. Period. And our world is confused about those things as much as anything else. We glorify science today as the gatekeepers of truth. I'm going to get in trouble. Oh, fam, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm talking about science now. Eggs were good for us today. They were going to kill us yesterday, and they were a staple food for centuries before that. Stuff that was anti-science when the pandemic started, look out, are readily accepted today. And nobody apologized for that. Just That was their truth two years ago, and they live a different truth now. So the question I think we need to start with is, is there such a thing as truth? And this is the defining question. This is is one of those, do you go into the promised land or do you wander for 40 years questions? This is one of those questions that determines where the kingdom of God can go in your life. Because the, the Bible declares... That there is absolutely a truth. And it's a person. Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's a big statement. That is a huge statement. And verses like this absolutely have to, have to, have to shape Jesus' big question in Mark 8. Who do people say that I am? Because statements like this in John 14 really limit the answers you can give to that question in Mark 8. Because with verses like this sitting in your Bible, you can't say Jesus is a great moral teacher. You can't say he's a social justice warrior who cared about the underprivileged. You can't say he's a political revolutionary. Have you ever heard of Lewis's Trilemma? This is a famous apologetics argument that C.S. Lewis made in Mere Christianity. We're actually going to read it together. I'm trying here, this is Lewis speaking, to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is one of the things we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil from hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he is neither lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. This is the classic liar, lunatic, or Lord argument. So when we say, no one, when, when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. He's either evil, which if this statement is not true, it's an evil thing to say. To lure someone away from a possible way to God by saying you're the way to God, that would be pure evil. If you're not the way to God, to say that is evil. If he's not evil, and he's not God, And we have to assume he's loony as a $3 bill, as my dad used to say. But if we think that this man who healed the sick and freed the oppressed and, and, and opened the door of fellowship to women and forgave sinners and valued children and crossed racial barriers with love and called out cruel and oppressive power structures and above all else, sacrificed himself for people who had abandoned him. If you think that that man isn't evil and you think that his words were far too brilliant and world-changing to be lunacy, then you are out of other options. Based on the things he said, he's not just a good person. So Jesus pushes us into a corner. We only have three options. He's either crazy, or he's cruel, or he's Christ. And if he's Christ, you and I... Have a decision to make. Because Jesus being Christ, Jesus being the King of God's kingdom, Jesus being everything that He Himself claimed to be, absolutely demands something from us. Which drags us back to Mark's big question Who do you say that Jesus is? And that moment, that question, that decision. is the moment of standing in the wilderness with a promised land before you. And the only thing between you and that milk and honey is that question. Will you have faith? Will you believe God? And the situation that faces us is the exact same situation that faces the Israelites 3,500 years ago. As we consider all the places God's kingdom can go, all the places it could have gone in the in the Palestinian countryside, all the places the kingdom of God can go in our world today, all the places it can go in our own hearts and souls and in our lineage through our kids, comes down to that same question, will we believe? Because the kingdom of God only exists where there is faith. But where there is faith, nothing in heaven and earth can stop the kingdom of God. One of the ways that Jesus describes the kingdom of God, as people would ask him questions about the kingdom and he would use these metaphors and pictures, he would say it's kind of like this, but it's also a little bit like that. One of his metaphors was yeast. He said it's like this tiny bit of yeast that a woman puts in in a big bowl of flour and she activates it and mixes it and proofs it my wife bakes bread I've watched a great British bake off I know the words I don't know what any of it even means but I know the words she, she proofs it and, and Jesus says God's kingdom is like that yeast so tiny that it almost seems inconsequen- inconsequential proportionally speaking to the rest of the recipe like how on earth could just that tiny little bit of yeast make any difference at all but once it's introduced, it changes everything. And this is such a powerful picture of what the children of God of, of Israel faced in today's passage, because their fighting ability was not going to change by the way they responded to the spies' report. The size, their size in comparison to their enemies, was not going to change because of the reaction to the, the, the spies' report. Their swords weren't going to be sharper. They weren't going to be endued with new weapons. They weren't going to have thousands of new people join their ranks because of how they responded to the spies' report. Faith wasn't going to change any of that. A bowl of flour without yeast and a bowl of flour with yeast look the same. Nothing changes. But those two things are very different. The children of Israel stayed just outside of everything they had ever dreamed of because they lacked That tiny little bit of faith. And as we sit here this morning, face to face with the question that Jesus asked in Mark 8, who do you say that I am? It's no different. Because see, how we answer that question is only step number one. And the reason so many people, despite the logic of Lewis's trilemma, the reason people want to believe that Jesus is just a great moral teacher, or just one of the many ways to live a good life, or or one of the people who actually got it. The reason people want to believe that despite what Jesus actually said about himself, that he's just normal, is because they believe that Jesus if they believe that Jesus is actually the Son of God, the Savior of their souls, then it draws a line in the sand. Doesn't it? Because a wise man you can turn to when you need whenever you need wisdom. A good moral example is someone you can follow when you don't know what else to do. A great thinker can be integrated into your own personal philosophy with all the other voices, but a Christ is all or nothing. This is why we don't like Lewis's trilemma, because in our guts, we know that Jesus wasn't crazy. And in our hearts, we know that he was not evil. But we fear admitting the only alternative left. Because that would demand everything of us. That would put us, like the Israelites so long ago, on the brink of everything we ever dreamed of. And only one question between our current situation and that promised land. it's that question that hasn't changed in 3,500 years. Do you believe me? And you might say, Christmas is basic stuff, right? Believing in Jesus, isn't that pretty rudimentary? And it is. But here's the deal. If 65% of people surveyed say they're Christian, and most of those don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God or the way to the Father, then I can't take the chance that this is rudimentary stuff. Because I believe every kingdom has to have land. It has to have space and territory where it exists. And for God's kingdom, that space is anywhere there is faith in Jesus. The real Jesus. The Jesus that the Bible reveals to us. So how do we respond to this? I don't think I have that slide. That's weird. You know this whole mess in Ukraine? One of the biggest things going on there is about kingdom territory. Ukraine is uh, a land that Moscow used to control. In some of the areas like the Donbass and the Crimea, many or maybe even most of the people living there still feel more Russian than Ukrainian. And they only find themselves in the situation they are because of an arbitrary borderline somebody else drew. Can you imagine like feeling Russian but... And growing up Russian, your family's Russian, all your connections are Russian, and one day somebody tells you, oh, by the way, you're no longer Russian, you're now Ukrainian. It'd be like us, if if we read the news tomorrow and it was like, Governor Kelly and and Biden and Trudeau got together in Kansas, now part of Canada. And you're like, I don't want to be in Canada, but I got a house and land and a job. Like, what do I do? Like, that's kind of what it's like there. But imagine this. Imagine if 65% of the people in a survey assume they're in God's kingdom to find out they're on the wrong side of the border. Actually, 61%. I had to do the math. A percent of a percent is hard. So I Googled it. 61% of the people surveyed would be on the wrong side of the border. And that's what I think is happening. Remember how I said that there was a point in history when, when... where Western focus shifted from being a monarch-centric thing to a border-centric thing. So it doesn't really matter who's on the throne as long as I'm inside the borders. I'm afraid we've carried that into our beliefs about church. We believe that it doesn't matter who's on the throne of our hearts as long as I'm in church. Boy, that's not how God's kingdom works. Who do you say That I am. And how we answer that question matters. What we believe matters. And going all the way back to the things some of the earliest followers of Jesus said matter. They're essential. I don't think we can bend on those things. There's a lot of things to debate about, but for 2,000 years the church has uh, agreed on some basics. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He is, on the third day, he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from there, he, Jesus, shall come to judge the living and the dead. These are not negotiable. They're not debatable. Those don't depend on your truth or my truth or Oprah's truth. So the way that I would love to respond to this message is by doing exactly what Mark wanted us to do when we read his letter. And that's to face that big question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because that dictates where the border of the kingdom of God goes in your life. I wish we had time to talk about all the ways we advance that kingdom by faith into new and powerful areas, and I think we're going to get to that eventually. But I feel this morning like we need to be sure that we know where the borders are. Because here's the deal. I say all the time, and we, you are welcome here if you disagree with me. You're welcome here if you doubt. You're welcome here if you think this whole thing is crazy and you just love the fact that we have free coffee. And we are never going to ask you to acknowledge a basal list of doctrinal statements to be counted among us, to be fully one of us and to fellowship with us. But please, O-Fam, please, anybody watching this, please don't think that 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 means it doesn't matter what you believe. We're going to actually talk next week about the citizens of the kingdom and why we don't like to divide even over some of these fundamental beliefs. So if you want that, you have to come back next week. The hook. But this week I just want to say that deciding who's in and who's out is above my pay grade, so I don't play that game. But that doesn't mean you can believe whatever you want and be in the kingdom of God. Jesus made it very clear. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father any other way. So this morning, as we sing one last song and gather around the Lord's table, I invite you, put your faith in Jesus. Move across that border if you haven't. And if you have, if you are a firm believer in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, (laughs) start talking about it. Start thinking about it. This is not rudimentary stuff. We've raised a generation who doesn't believe this anymore. And that's horrible. We have to get back to faith in Jesus. Amen.